you've got your Bibles, turn to a familiar place. We're going to be back in the book of Ephesians. We were there for a while, and we're going to be there for a while again uh, as we go back to the book of Ephesians. Now, as you're turning there, I'm going to remind you of some things that we studied in chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3. In chapter 1, we saw all of those blessings that God gave us in Christ Jesus that come to us through what God has uh, done in Christ on the cross. And those are all of ours. He's called us, he, he's predestined us, he's adopted us, he's uh, given us insight into the mystery of his will. All of those things come in Christ. Chapter two talked a lot about how God was doing this work of raising us from death to life. You remember it said you were dead in your trespasses and sins and yet God called you out of those things and made you alive together with Christ. And then chapter three began to talk about how God was doing a, a work for everybody who is outside of the Jewish faith, those of us who are Gentiles, and if you're not Jewish, you're Gentile, how God was doing a work in, in unifying us and tearing down the wall of separation and that we had a part in the inheritance with God and his people. And this great thing that God is doing is just awesome to see. So in chapter four, we start with this idea of unity. And I wanna read just three verses this morning, and it's really the last verse that is the important verse for us. And the first two verses just tell us how to keep what we've already got. So let's read verses one, two, and three of chapter four. Therefore, I, the prisoner, and this is Paul writing, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. As we look at this, what we've been seeing is the first three chapters have been all about doctrine and theology. And we know that we have to go back and understand the passage we're looking at because it started with that important word for us. Verse one said, therefore. When there's a therefore, we have to ask, what's it there for? So what's it there for? It's going back and he's saying, in light of everything I've just given you, I want you to understand something about unity, and it's going to come through the doctrine that you've been learning, and it's important for you to see this. Now, as he directs us in this part of the, of the letter that we're reading to this church that he wrote at Ephesus, what he's basically doing is saying, you've gotten all of the doctrine and now I'm gonna show you the application of holy and righteous living in your life with that doctrine. And here's how you're going to live these things out. And you can't separate them. They're, they're, they're not things that are enemies of one another. One is important so that you can live out the other, right? That, that, that becomes very important for us to understand. As we talk about unity, I think there are two things with unity that we could kind of immediately run to and both of them would be incorrect. And I want to just kind of set these aside before we start talking about that this morning. If we were to talk about unity, we might believe incorrectly that we're creating unity here at the church and that that's essential for us to do. We might think that we're responsible for it, that we build it, that we're, we get behind a project or we get behind a missions. I mean, we just had a missions conference that was incredible. And we might think, now listen, we got to be unified to go after the mission here. And let's all unify around the mission. As we all go together around the mission, God's going to do something. And we basically create it and it's ours to do. That's not right. That would be incorrect. That would act like unity is something that we manufacture and we can't. 
Unity is something only God can do, and we're going to see in a little bit that we're responsible for guarding it, for keeping it. But what we see is, is that, that a lot of people say, like, we, we need to unify around this. Y'all come together. We're all going to go after this. We're all going to chase this. And that sounds good. doesn't work very well. The second way that we might be mistaken is to think that unity would be something, and, and this really, I, I don't know, maybe you guys had been hearing this forever, but it was really in the, in the 90s that I started hearing this all the time. I was a college student, and people used to say, we're gonna have an ecumenical service. We're all gonna come together, and if the churches would just all unite and lay aside their differences, and everybody forget who they are for a minute, we could be unified around whatever, well, that doesn't work either because he said that unity is built out of chapters one, two, and three. There's a doctrinal piece of this that has to be present in our lives to unify us. And now what he's gonna show us is that God is the one who gives us unity and it's our job to live it out, to guard that unity in such a way that we see some incredible things happen. And, and I think what would happen is, as a lot of people wanna do the easy thing, like, oh, let's unify, but let's skip chapters one, two, and three. That doesn't work. You gotta have the doctrine to understand the unity, okay? And if we're gonna do that today, it requires us to put on our thinking cap for just a minute. I want you to see three things out of this passage that become very important for us. The first is that he tells us the way we walk is important. He says you need to walk Worthy, And as we look at that statement in, in verse one, he says, I'm this prisoner of the Lord and I urge you. In other words, he's saying like, I'm, I'm beseeching you. You might hear it say is like, I'm exhorting you to do this. I'm contending with you to do this. You need to walk worthy in a worthy manner of your calling. This is a word walk that I think is very important for us. He's gonna use it several other times as we go through these latter chapters. But when he says walk, it implies something, doesn't it? Because what we get from the Lord is not that, that old preachers used to say, God didn't save you to sit and soak. Have you ever heard somebody say that? God didn't save you so that you would just sit in the church and soak. God saved you and he set you on this journey. And he says, the way that you walk is important. I, I used to see this, this is kind of an old thing too. You used to see t-shirts that say, don't talk the talk unless you can walk the walk. Well, what is it talking about there? there there's something to, to the destination that we're heading, uh, where we're on this journey with the Lord. And we talk about being in a walk, it's movement implied. God saved us and he changed the way that we were walking, changed the direction we were headed. And when he saved us and we repented, we changed directions, right? And we moved in a new way, walking with the Lord. And it implies destination. And we know that our destination, our home is ultimately gonna be heaven. And we're walking towards that, moving towards that. And he says, you need to walk worthy. When he uses this term, as he talks about worthy and walking, he says, your manner is to be worthy. And when we talk about that, I want you to see this picture because worthy means balanced. This is a funny thing. When you look at a picture of justice and how it's supposed to be in the United States, we say that justice is supposed to have a blindfold on. Have you ever seen the picture around the court? Sometimes justice, this lady justice will have a blindfold on and she's holding a balance beam scale. 
right? So that when you, meaning effectively, when you come into a court, it shouldn't matter who you are. It shouldn't matter how much money you have. It shouldn't matter if the judge grew up in your hometown and y'all hung out at the golf course together or, or you were friends growing up. It should be that justice is blind to all of those things and the facts matter and the facts and the evidence should weigh that out. It should, right? That's how it's supposed to be. And when we talk about balance there, when he says worthy, he's talking about your life being balanced. I want you to think about what that might mean for us. When he says walk worthy and he says walk balanced like this, he's saying in effect, chapters one, two, and three, I've, I've told you all of these things and your life needs to be matched, balanced to that. A lot of times our lives aren't matched or balanced to what we're supposed to be. I know that you're looking at me like you don't understand what I'm talking about. So I'll speak from personal experience and we'll see if you can identify. I just went to this thing this week I had the privilege of going to. It was something that the Tennessee Baptist Convention called the School of the Prophets. And I didn't know what it was going to be. And as I was leaving, Pastor Rich said, I hope you have fun at Prophets Camp. And I was like, I know, that, that just feels funny to say I'm going to the school of the prophets, doesn't it? And, and Kirk asked me this morning, he said, when you got in your room, did you have a staff or a cloak or anything waiting on you? And it, we didn't. I mean, it was a little bit of a letdown, you know. I th- and there was a river right outside. I thought we might strike that bad boy and see if water parted. I mean, I, it didn't work out that way. What it was was a time of encouragement. And one of the songs that we sang there really expresses how, re, uh, I guess I would say, how unrelenting sin is in our lives because we sang this song together, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Now, that may not be your testimony, but you're lying. It's my testimony. Do you feel that? That idea of match and balance becomes very important because we're always prone as we're walking to want to go, but this feels comfortable. This is what I've known for all of my life. This feels like me over here. I mean, like these friends over here, this is, this is kind of like comfortable. And Lord, you're calling me to walk and now I'm over here and I've got new people and new customs and I'm reading the Bible and it's telling me to do these strange things. And Lord, our pastor said we need to give to missions last week. What in the world? Lord, our pastor said we might be called to go on missions, not me. Lord, what does that mean? Well, when your life is balanced in that, it's saying that who you are in Christ is what you're living out. So when he says to us, walk in a manner worthy, this becomes very, very important for us to see. You need to walk in a manner worthy of how you've been called. Well, how were you called? You were called out of darkness into light. You were called from death to life. Right? Nobody wants to go back to death. No, you know, I've often wondered about this. And, and Side note, this is, man, rabbit trail. It just popped in my mind. Wasn't in the notes. What, I hadn't thought about this. Didn't say it in the first service. You ever notice, like, I mean, I've often thought, you think Lazarus ever felt like he got gypped? He dies, and we assume, right? I mean, when you die, you're in glory. And a couple of days later, Jesus shows up and says, come forth. You ever wonder if he's like, I got to die again? Come on. Doesn't seem to be that way, though. He came out and seemed to be excited. 
there's something about us that wants to live, right? But we, we can find ourselves wanting to go back to these things, back to death, back to the old ways. And he says, don't do it. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. God has placed his call on you to be his son, his daughter. He's called you out of darkness into his light. He's called you from death into life. And what he's saying is let it match up. Let your holiness and your righteous practice be such. You've probably never done this, but I find sometimes when the light isn't very great in my bedroom, it's real easy to think that navy and black are the same. Have you ever come to church wearing navy pants with black socks? And you don't notice it till you get in. These lights are harsh, right? And it's very, very bright. And you cross your leg for the first time when you're sitting at the pew and you see your sock and you're like, oh man. I hope nobody thinks I'm one of those people, you know, that can't, I mean, right? When you're mismatched, does it feel funny? We're not supposed to be mismatched. And if you're mismatched in your life right now, God's telling you, I called you out of that walk worthy. Make your life's adornment be righteousness and holiness. Well, then he says, as you walk worthily, you have four characteristics of your life that make up the relational work that you do at church. Look at these. It's humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another. You see that in verse 2? Do these things with humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. When you think about humility, someone once said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. That's very hard for us because for all of us, we often only start the day and end the day thinking about ourselves. We, we think of ourselves because I certainly am the most important person in my life. I mean, I don't know how it is at your house, but you're probably the most, you, you just, you're consumed with these things. And for us to come together as a church body, it says that we're to be humble. We're to not think highly of ourselves. We're to regard ourselves as nothing. We, we were reading out of Philippians 2, and that passage is so rich because it talks about Christ not considering his station in heaven. What does that mean? It means that Christ is eternal. God didn't create Jesus. You know, please tell me you know that, right? You know it now. So there you go. Christ didn't create, wasn't created by God when he came to earth. What, what we understand in Genesis 1:26, God was saying, let us create man in our image. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Let us create man in our image. So when Christ is in heaven and God says, hey, the way for us to go forward with this is that you're going down there and you're gonna take on human flesh and you're gonna give your life as an atoning sacrifice. I mean, Jesus could have balked at that and said, I mean, heaven's pretty good. I mean, why should I have to, to humble myself in that? But he didn't. He humbled himself and didn't even regard that. And the scripture says he humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross for us. So when we see our example there, we understand that our station, our power, our importance, when we walk in these doors, it, it really doesn't matter. If you walked in the door this morning hoping to feel important, I'm really sorry. I hope we've let you down. I really do. Because you're not important 
in terms of who we are horizontally, we're, we're important who we are vertically that God has called us, right? That's what makes us important is that God has called us and he's called all of us. I mean, there, there's nothing that I have that you don't have if you're in Christ. There's nothing you have that I don't have if you're in Christ. Now I'm in Christ. We're, we're the same before the Lord. God's called us out of this darkness. So when we come into the church, it's not about power. It's not about being important. It's, it's just about being together and me thinking less of myself and more of you and you thinking less of yourself and more of me and God starts to do something. He says that we're to be gentle. The word is also used here, meekness, to be meek. Oftentimes we think of somebody who's meek and we think of them being a wimp or a pushover or somebody that has no opinions or, or, or can't stand up for themselves and nothing could be further from the truth. You remember that Jesus said to be meek is a blessing. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek they will inherit the earth. It's a quality that Jesus said about himself, I am lowly and meek. Come take my burden, I am lowly and meek. Jesus had all the power in the world. He was gentle and it was strength under control. I was reading this week and it gets lost a little bit in translation because we're going from Hebrew to Greek to English from the Old Testament sometimes when we think about that, but... Numbers chapter, I think it's 12 and verse 3, describes Moses this way. It says that he's the, the most humble man. And that word, humble, meek, in the Old Testament, that ever walked the earth. Moses seemed like a pushover to you. He stood before Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler in the world, and said, let my people go. He called plagues that God told him were going to appear and and they did that. It's not about that, but when I'm gentle, it means that my strength, whatever I might have, should be under control. It shouldn't be at the forefront of who I am that I'm trying to come in like a bull in a china shop. Then he says, patience, not quick to the fuse. Sometimes this word is called long-suffering. That's a great definition of what it means to be patient. If you're a long-suffering person, it means really that you do what? You suffer a long time with other people. If we're going to be effective parents, we should all be a little more long-suffering, right? We, we, we need that in our lives. And you've often heard it said that the only way to develop this is to be in the crucible of life where you're, you're learning those things. And, and I read the story of a, of a pastor who once had a parishioner after church come by and pastor, would you just pray for me? I need patience. And he said, I will. Let's bow our heads. And he said, Lord, bring down the greatest tribulation on this brother and just help him to bear up under it. And I pray that it'll be unrelenting, Lord. You'll just pour it on him. The guy said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm helping you get patience. That's how it comes, right? I mean, we all know we need it. None of us want to pray for it, right? Have you, has anybody ever said this to you? You better be careful about praying for patience. Don't be afraid to pray for patience. Ask God to help you in that. Ask God to help you bear up under it. Ask God to make that who you are. He says that we bear with one another. You know what that means? It means that we deal with one another's faults. You have them. I do too. Bearing with one another means that I put up with you when you're a knucklehead. And you put up with me when I'm a knucklehead. And it happens. It just happens. I know that we like to all think that everybody else is a lot worse off than we are. You know, I, 
I can see the sin in your life a lot easier than I can see it in mine. Jesus told us that, right? That we ought to be careful that we're not grabbing specks out of somebody else's eye while we have a two by four sticking out of ours. So we understand that, that that's a tendency, but oftentimes we forget that. And so it's real easy to nitpick everybody else's faults and, and, and kind of pick at them to death. But, but the truth of it is, when we're bearing with one another, it means we're giving people time to grow into the fullness of who they're going to be in Christ. And that's a lifelong process. It's a journey that we're on. It doesn't happen overnight. You don't get the fullness of who you're going to be in a year or two walking with Christ like you would in just the day that you come to know him. It takes time. And so part of that is just understanding I have to bear up with that and I have to love you anyway and you have to love me. I saw this on display personally for me when I became the 25-year-old pastor of the Bethlehem Baptist Church. What people in their right mind call somebody who's 25 years old to be their head pastor? I don't know if all the resumes got lost in the mail or if I was just the only person who showed up that day. I don't know. I don't know how it was me. But I'm telling you, that church was patient and long-suffering and forbearing with their pastor. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what they had to deal with? I thought I knew it all. I'd been to seminary, right? I had three years of school. I was ready to go. They were patient. They taught me so much about that. I had to be patient with them too. You know why? Because just like me, they weren't perfect either. But they taught me so much about that. When we're patient and forbearing with one another, we're allowing God to do work, not writing people off. And as we do that, what starts to happen is the Spirit of God starts to move in our midst and he starts to build something. And we get to this last part, this most important verse that we need to spend our time on today, where it says, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. What we're discovering when we read this is that unity is something that God gives us in Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit develops and manufactures. We don't manufacture it. We can't make it up. We can't fall in behind something. But the word that he uses is really important. And, and the, the, the word that I used as I read this, it said keep the unity. And that word's just a little bit weak because it really could mean guard the unity. That takes on a different sense, doesn't it? Because who then is responsible for that? Is the pastor responsible to guard the unity of the church? No. Are the deacons? No. We are. If you're sitting in here, you bear that weight of responsibility like I do. We are to guard the unity of the church. And we do it by living out those four qualities and letting our life match our doctrine. When we do that, all of a sudden, we're guarding something that's very, very precious to us. And when he says, I want you to make every effort to do what's necessary to let the unity of the church and this common salvation that we have be on display for the world, that's huge for us. Because he says, God is doing something in your midst. I think about this and I say this to you all the time. We're 110 years old as a church and my mind is blown every time I say that word. 110 years old. For 110 years, faithful people have been gathering in this place or other places named Judson Baptist to worship the living God. And we're standing on their shoulders and we understand that what we have today is precious, 
because other people were building into that and God was doing something as they walked the walk together and as they exhibited these qualities together, God begins to do something quite amazing. I want you to see this. Go back to chapter one because it's actually been all throughout the book. I want you to see this, chapter one and verse nine. He says, God, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. What's he saying? God was doing something. He was reunifying something that had been disrupted and broken by sin. Because guess what? That's what sin does. If you think your sin only affects you, you haven't been around sin long enough. Your sin will affect everybody around you. It's toxic, it's hurtful, it's damaging, it's a disruptor of things. And we see it already in the garden, don't we? We saw it with Adam and Eve. Do you remember that fellowship they had with the Lord? We used to sing that song, he walks with me and he talks with me. Where'd we get that? It was Adam and Eve walking in the garden in the cool of the day and God would commune with them. But when they sinned and fell into temptation, what happened? That relationship was disrupted, separation. He says, now Christ has come so that may be unified again. It's brought back together. Chapter two, I want you to see this in verse 14. He says, this is important. He is our peace who made both groups into one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made no effect of the law consisting of commands and expressed regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put hostility to death. Do you remember our study of this passage of scripture and that uh, inscription I showed you from the temple mount that they found? There was this, this wall. You could come in as a Gentile if you weren't a Jew. So that's everybody in here. If you're not a Jew, right, you could come in to the outer court, but there was an inscription before you could go any further. It said, any Gentile that crosses here, you're dead, dead. So imagine your whole religious life having to kind of peek over the wall just being on the outside, you weren't allowed in. And what he said here is there was this hostility between Jews and Gentiles. They hated each other. And now that's been torn apart, set aside. The wall, which would have meant so much to them who understood what that wall was, has been torn down in Christ. What's he doing? Unifying. The two have become one. It's a beautiful picture. So it doesn't matter anymore what your race is. It doesn't matter. We're all going together with God. We're God's family, God's people. When I think about that, it absolutely cracks me up that God would choose to do it that way. Because, you know, it's hard enough just to get your family to agree. I dare you. Get in the car after lunch and ask everybody what they want to eat. There's somebody in the family who will say, well, I don't care what we eat. And then you'll name something. They go, well, I don't want to eat that. Every time, you're probably one of those people. You know what I mean? You know exactly who you are. It's hard. And yet God takes all of us and he smashes us together and he puts us in this body, this church, and God starts doing something. I want you to see why he does it. Look at chapter three, verse 10. Again, these are things that we've already studied. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in 
the heavens. Unity is massive for the world to see. How many of you have spent all of your life living in the southeastern part of the United States? Raise your hand. All right. How many of you are our northern brethren? You came down and brought your Yankee ways to us. Right? I see I see you. God bless you all. Yes? How many of you didn't grow up in this country at all? Raise your hand. All right? Look around the room. Right? It's a lot of people that God... And what happens is in the world, we have to have rallies for unity. And we have to, to come together over this issue and that issue. And what he's saying here is... God has done something in the church that should be on display all the time so that the rulers and authorities outside of here should be able to look at that and go, what's going on over there at Judson Baptist? We can't get anybody to get along anywhere else, but at Judson Baptist, somehow God's doing something. Well, what's the unifier? It's that we have Christ living in us, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, that we've been saved. And that commonality brought together defies all the worldly wisdom that you could imagine. You know what worldly wisdom is saying right now? I, I, I mean, this absolutely blows my mind. Uh, a survey of a certain number of colleges, this was in the hundreds, said that 71% of them are now offering dormitories that are exclusionary by your race. How's that helping anybody? Are, are we going backwards? But help me understand that. What are we doing? See, in the church, we say, no, no, everybody comes in. We all go together. Why? Because God's moving us forward. My life is enriched by your life. Your life is enriched by my life. Your, your background, your experiences, they shape something for us that we can't get on our own. It's incredible to see what God does. And so while the world is losing their mind and we're having all these talking points about this race and that race and this and that, what we say is, I mean, just come to church. Come hang out. Come see what happens when people get saved. It changes their lives. Guys, that's the way forward. And as God starts to do it, he does something amazing. He tells us to keep the peace with the bond of peace. The bond of peace. Frank Thielman says that peace is a fastener that binds us together. When you're fastened with someone, you're not apart. We were talking about this this summer. Do you remember going to the carnival or the picnic and watching people compete in three-legged races? That's always fun, isn't it? Let's tie two people together and see how long it takes them to fall. I love that. I don't want to participate in it, but I do like to sit on the sidelines and laugh at people who like to participate in those things. They're falling all over themselves. Right? It's very hard, right? And sometimes when we're fastened together, we have to go a little bit slower, right? And sometimes we can really get a rhythm going and we're going a little bit faster. But when we're fastened together, God's doing something that's pretty incredible in our lives. And so we're told being fastened together with a bond of peace, guard the unity of this body. And it's your responsibility like my responsibility. Now, the unity was given to us by the Holy Spirit. And you would think, well, man, I'm glad we didn't have to make unity. That's already been done for us. All we have to do is keep it. Oh, would that be so easy? 
It's not. You can destroy unity fast. It doesn't take long. It doesn't take long at all. It, it can be destroyed fast when you don't have good relationships here. If you treat people in a way that doesn't involve humility and meekness, gentleness, patience and forbearance, it's, it's very easy for people to become disillusioned with what's going on and it starts to fracture things. And relationships are so important to what we're doing and what God's called us to do, because if we have fractured relationships, do you think that we're going to be able to support missions? Do you think that we're going to be able to, to fulfill the great commission? I mean, we don't unify around that. That's already been unified for us in Christ. That's the unity. But if we're fracturing our relationships and not treating people the right way, unity won't last long. If we speak about things in a disruptive manner, Unity won't last long. I hesitate to even say this because I said it and you have done so well with it that I'm afraid to mention it and then I'll get an email tomorrow. But, uh, you know, I really appreciate that you hadn't sent me whacked out emails lately. You know? I hadn't gotten an anonymous le- anonymous. Have you gotten an anonymous letter lately? I, I hadn't either. It's, been, it's refreshing, honestly. Thank you. Th- that's what we expect, Right? But if you get disruptive and, well, yeah, I don't like what they did up there. Well, you don't have to like it. You just have to go along with it. <laughs> it's sometimes harder just to be quiet and just keep moving, isn't it? We're not perfect. You're not perfect. That's why we're bearing with one another. That's why we're patient with one another. But if you get a critical spirit, man, unity will be gone before you know it. It doesn't take long. And here we are supposed to be guarding what God's given us. I think sometimes that we don't understand the difference between guarding and torturing. If you guard the prisoner, you take care of it, keep them safe, give them some food, make sure that their needs are met. Torturing is very different. And we think sometimes it's okay to be disruptive and it's okay to come into a place like this and, and just shoot off at the mouth about this and that, and we need to be careful of those things because what God's trying to do is something that's bigger than what we can accomplish on our own and we can destroy it so quickly. And that's the opposite of guarding. You have a responsibility here to guard the unity with the bond of peace. If you read Colossians And I'd encourage you to do it as we're studying the book of Ephesians because they're really so similar. Written to two different churches. Ephesians written to the churches or church in Ephesus. Colossians written to a place called Colossae. And as you read them, you'll see that they're, they're, they're very, uh, I mean, almost overlapping. I mean, it's, it's really cool because what happens is you get just a little bit different perspective on what we're studying in Ephesians, but it's really similar. When he talks about this in Colossians, he doesn't say the bond of peace. He says you keep it with love. There won't be peace without love, will it? We have to love one another. We just read that. Kirk had us read that. We love because God has loved us. It's an outpouring of who we are now. If we want peace and we're pushing forward that, that's how that works.
Have you ever been told by the doctor that you need to exercise while you're not feeling good? That's hard, right? You don't, maybe you got some of that chest congestion. He says, listen, you need to get up, you got to get moving. You got to get off the, got to get off the couch. You need to clear your lungs, find something to do. And you go out there and suffer through it and you can't breathe and it's just not fun. You don't feel like yourself or you've had an injury and you're trying to rehab it. I, I don't know if you've noticed, my son uh, has been walking around here with a cast for the last little bit, and I tried to get his mother not to hit him that day, but she wouldn't listen to me, and she's just mean, you know, and we're working on it. You pray for us. He hurt his arm playing soccer, and uh, so we went to the soccer field yesterday, and they said, hey, you have to bandage this thing up because now he has a weapon, Right, It's not just a cast to protect him. It's to hit somebody, knock him out or something. So we had to bandage this thing up. And, you know, you can play around. I mean, you can, you can do a lot of things with a bandaged arm. I mean, you, know, you can go to school, unfortunately. You can, you know, all these kinds of things that you wish you wouldn't have to do. You can do. But it's not the same, is it? And I think a lot of times we're walking around kind of like trying to exercise with stuff in our lungs or with an arm that's not right and... And we wonder why it's so hard. Why, why it's so hard? And we're missing that we're a little sick because we're allowing disruption or we're being the disruptor. And we don't realize how dangerous that is to something that God has already created for us. And we can preserve it and maintain it or we can tear it down. But we can't manufacture it. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me this morning. I would like us to spend a moment in some directed prayer as we get started. Would you take a moment and go before the Lord? And would you really ask him to reveal to you, are you living in a manner worthy of your calling? Does your life match the faith that you say you have? God's revealing something to you, would you just confess it and ask the Lord to deliver you from that? Thank him for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. As you think about those words, humility and patience, meekness, forbearance, bearing with one another, is there anybody in your life right now that maybe has left you wounded or hurt and you're having a hard time being long-suffering with them and patient? You just need to go before the Lord and forgive that person and let that burden go. Would you do it? if you've been in any way disruptive to the unity of the body of Christ in our church or your church if you don't go here 
and you haven't guarded that, would you just ask the Lord to forgive you? This is serious stuff, folks. What God's given us, we don't want anything that we would ever do to tear it apart. Oh, Father, would you make us faithful to your word? Expose our hidden faults, Lord, and allow us to live in the freedom that you've given us in Christ. We pray, Father, for patience. And it's a scary prayer, but we pray for it, Lord. Teach us how to live and love like Jesus. Let us be meek and gentle men and women, boys and girls. Let us be long-suffering with folks. Father, would you let us be forgiving and kind. Father, our prayer today is that we would preserve and guard, protect the unity that you have given us in Christ. Father, help us to walk worthy of that calling, balanced with it, Lord. And as we do, we pray that we would be a testimony to the lost world today. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.